0: Recently, I had a meeting with a pastor, and he wanted to know how he could lead his church more effectively in discipleship, and I'm going to share with you the fruit of that conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy thinking with my pastor friend, about how to love God by helping others to do soul care well. This podcast is for every Christian because every Christian has been called by Christ to go out and make disciples. And so what I want to do is I want to help you to think about how to do the work of discipleship. But as you know, you just don't go out and do the work of discipleship. There are steps that come before it. And so I want to walk through four non-negotiable practical steps that you need to understand. And my hope is that it will help you to be a more effective disciple maker, whether that person is your spouse or or your children or children discipling their parents or someone in your church. Christians Helping Christians. And so I've titled the podcast, How to Disciple Someone So They Will Care for Others. And you see the formula in the title, How to Disciple Someone, and you have a goal. So they will go and do what you did for them. Discipleship is is always about helping others to go and do the same thing. And so thank you for joining me for this podcast. I am Rick Thomas, and you are listening to Your Daily Drive. And as always, you can read our podcast on our website because all the Your Daily Drive podcasts are written out word for word. And I have a lot of words here in this article, and I would love for you to read it, plus the dozen, two dozen embedded links You could spend three months studying just this one resource, How to Disciple Someone So They Will Care for Others. One of the perks of my job is I get to meet with some wonderfully gifted pastors. These men love Jesus and are regularly laying down their lives for the sake of the people they love the most. Their local churches. And you know that when I I use the term local churches, I am never talking about a building when I say that. I'm talking about a group of people. And these pastors love their local churches. They love the people that they get to serve. I wish I could share more openly about their lives, but that would not be appropriate. But I will say this. These gentlemen love God... They love their wives. They love their churches. It seems as though the only thing they think about is how to better care for others, and it is inspiring, but I I will say also that it is personally convicting to me as I I talk to them and see what they do or hear what they do on a day-to-day, week-to-week, year-in, year-out basis It is a definite perk of my job, and it is a privilege to consult with such humble men." God has positioned me to come alongside a few of these godly men to assist them in thinking through how to do better soul care. In fact, I had two uh, re- uh, two requests today from local churches. One was out west, one was down south, and they were asking me to come and to do a discipleship biblical counseling training conference over several days, and we are working through that process now, but that again is one of the perks of my job to be able to not just consult, but come alongside and and serve them, serve these pastors uh, to serve the people that they love. And so let me give you my outline for this article. There are four components in the context of this article of discipleship, and they are sequential. Here's the order. Number one, knowledge That's where you start. Number two, disciple. You've got to have somebody to disciple. Three, the gospel. All roads lead to and flow out of the gospel. And then number four, export. You want your disciple to go and make disciples. And so knowledge is a base of knowledge to share with someone. And then number two, disciple. It's an individual, or maybe it's a couple looking for help. And then number three is the gospel. A wise and practical understanding of the gospel is vital. And then number four, export. Candidates that the person you disciple, people that you disciple, can go and do what you did. Now, in this article, those are the four components of discipleship. Knowledge, disciple, gospel, export in that order. And so if you want to follow what Jesus asked all Christians to do, you must have this worldview in mind all the time. These four components are not negotiable if you aim to obey the Great Commission. And so with these things in mind, let me take you on a quick tour through each one to break them down into chewable pieces. I'll take them in order. Number one, knowledge you have to have a base of knowledge i bet you heard this before faith comes by hearing and hearing by the knowledge hearing by the word of god you know that's romans 10:17 you know this truth well thus if you want to grow in your faith if you want to grow in your christianity you need a source a foundation a base of information that will assist you and others in Christian maturity. Fortunately, God is a speaking God. He gave us his words, so we would not be in a dark room all of our lives searching for an exit. We have the light. The, the light is a lamp. It's a lamp like onto our feet, and it guides us down the path. The only essential, unique, sufficient, authoritative, and infallible words that we have from him, God, are in the Bible. Therefore, the Bible becomes the foundational basis for any knowledge that you will use to train anyone. Now, here's a catch here, and I want to make sure that you understand this. And if this is new, I want you to stop right here. Go read the article and stop right there, and I want you to ponder what I'm about to say. That tidbit that I just shared with you, which I think all Christians understand, it does not mean you cannot use other sources of knowledge. It would be unwise to stick to the Bible like a parrot without implementing one of the most significant grace gifts that we have in the Holy Spirit, who helps us to understand and to communicate God's words in practical ways. If you could not speak about God by using Spirit-illuminated words that were not in the Bible, like Trinity, for example, your life would be clunky and, and Spirit-deficient. The Spirit of God is active in our day, just like He has been throughout church history, always illuminating us to help us to think more clearly about God's words. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit's work is boundless. He has assisted many believers in writing good books about God and all things practical. And so it would be best to say that the Bible is, well, that's the foundation, that's the bottom, that is the core, that is the base, and and the books, the good books I'm talking about, flow out of that, but we know that the good that these books are is only because the writers of, the, of those books derived that information and, and commentaries and paraphrases and, and ways of thinking about the Bible, they derived that information from the Bible. The world is full of books from godly men and women who archive their thoughts About God and life. This podcast here, this article that I am sharing with you, is a tiny, minuscule, small example of how a person can work from the primary source of knowledge, the Bible, and extrapolate teaching that is not out of line with that base. And that's the key idea. If you're reading a book, and there are millions of bad books too, and bad Christian books because they are out of line with that base. Instructively, a commonly question, a commonly asked question that, that, that people ask, ask me is what would be a good book for our group, our small group, or or this person to go through? Now I understand the intent of the question, but honestly their concern that they have for their small group or the person that they are helping is not the right question that they should be asking. For discipleship purposes, which I am addressing in this podcast, you don't necessarily need to find the right book. We know how to find reliable, God-centered books. In the States, with the plethora of them, you can get one as quickly as the DSM folks create disorders. Still yet, many folks are always in search of the uh, of the one right book that will tell them how to do the one right thing so that they will be right with God and others. Book-centered Christians are pandemic in today's church. Before Gutenberg who created the invented the printing press, having the right book was never the issue. The wise person knows that the abundance of good books, it can lead to solitude, self-centered thinking, and dead sea living, meaning all this knowledge flows into you and never out of you. And so what you have heard me say thus far is the Bible is the base. Good books are exceptional and helpful, but I've also given you an unintended con- consequence of good books. Sometimes that's the be-all, end-all, and, and then the book in that case doesn't serve you the way that it should, because you can just live in solitude with your book. You can turn into a self-centered thinking uh, thinker rather than an uh, other-centered liver, That probably wasn't the best way to say that. I didn't mean liver, but living person. You could become a Dead Sea Christian. While the Bible is our sole authority and other good books will give you some direction, neither the Bible or a book will make your individual life practical without the assistance of a disciple-maker. Maybe you need to ponder that one for a while. I would reference Acts 8.31, where the Ethiopian was sitting uh, in his chariot with the Bible wide open in his lap, and he's almost dead center of it reading Isaiah 53, and he didn't understand what he was reading. Ironically, as I was writing this article and getting ready to do this podcast, someone on our forum asked a question about a significant marriage problem. He probably knows more theology than I do, but he does not know how to navigate his tumultuous marriage. Now, I want you to carefully reflect on what I just said. If if, if the end all be all is to read and understand great books, which I applaud, I've written, well, I've written some books. I'm not going to say they're great, Or, or to memorize the Bible for that matter, then. You're not where you need to be. There's more steps here. The book is the tool, and then there is the person who needs your customized customized care. You need a Philip in your life. The eunuch did. Timothy needed Paul in his life to help him to understand the Bible practically. Your goal is not to make that person an educated man or woman. That is one step without question, but your ultimate aim is to help this person to be a practicalized man or a practicalized woman. Your point of focus must be on how to take their knowledge from this fantastic Bible and these marvelous books and help them practicalize it into their lives. To practicalize the Word of God in a person's life, you must contextualize it and customize it into the warp and woof of their psyche, their soul. What you don't want to do is sit around reading and talking and explaining and learning what a book says. There is a place for understanding the Bible, praise God for Bible studies. There is a place for understanding godly books, but I'm talking about discipleship here. Discipleship is not discipleship if that is all you do. Typically, when I lead a small group, we go through the Sunday sermon, another source of knowledge like a book, and we do that from the previous weekend. The message becomes our base of knowledge in this case, and you see how that works. The pastor spends a week digging, crafting, exegeting, reflecting, praying, studying from the source, the Bible, and then he preaches a a well-orated, crafted, powerful sermon. And then in our small group, basically, we are applying what he derived from Scripture. Now, that's a fantastic way way to do that. But here's what I want you to understand. We only use the sermon as a point of departure and a lane to move down for the evening. But when the small group is over, it's not the sermon that we take home. I don't want them to take the sermon home with them. To restate what the pastor said on Sunday so that we can remember what he said is nothing more than stacking more knowledge into our overstuffed knowledge silos. The sermon, like any book we read in no small degree, vaporizes at the end of Sunday, or maybe by 12 noon before we hit our restaurants. And then on Wednesday or small group time, all you do is you shake the sermon globe and then you talk about it all over again. We hardly remember it anymore, whether you just think about it on Sunday or you shake the sermon globe and you rethink about it on Wednesday. The average Christian listens to more than 50 sermons a year. And more than 95% of that information only made it as far as their short term memory banks. There is a better question to ask in your small groups What has God been doing in your life? There's one. Or how have you practically applied the sermon from this past Sunday into your life? It is not the Bible or the books or the messages or even my podcast here that they remember with clarity. It is how they practically applied the knowledge to their specific lives. You learn by applying, not by sitting and soaking in God-centered materials. When Jesus talked about the Bible, he was applying the Bible to those he was discipling. Though he taught them knowledge, he was careful and patient to teach them how to make it practical. This perspective is why you rarely, rarely, rarely ever see him making monologues to anyone in the four gospels outside of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And when he did bust out a monologue on a group, you know what he did next. He would be so quick to pull them aside, his group, and he would make an application to their lives that those folks were living This training style is essential in the discipleship process. Jesus wanted more than smart Bible guys. He hoped they would know it, knowledge, understand it, and practically apply it to themselves in transformative ways. Jesus wants you to get smart by learning knowledge, and Jesus wants you to experience sanctification from your knowledge base. Do you have someone teaching you the truth? Do you have someone helping you to experience customized sanctification that flows out of that truth? I want to quickly share just a note that one of our supporters sent in just a couple of hours ago. It's Aaron Bone, and Aaron Bone has been supporting us for maybe a year and a half or two years, and it's a real short sentence. He said this, I've enjoyed being able to commend your website to others. There is so much of value there to the body of Christ. Thank you, Aaron Bone, Bone, for that kind comment. And I do want you to know that in 2019, the 11th year of our ministry, I have poured, I did pour tremendous time and thought and resources in keeping this labor of love going for you and keeping it free for you as well. It takes me hundreds of hours a month to research and provide and and thousands of dollars to sustain. If you find any joy and value in what I do, would you please consider giving? You can donate or you can become a supporting member with a gift of your choosing. I do want you to know that your generosity does matter. And so would you follow Aaron Bones' example and, and support us? I I greatly would appreciate it. The title of this podcast is How to Disciple Someone So They Will Care for Others. I have been giving you a, an outline of how to do that, starting with a knowledge base, and, and then you need a candidate. You need someone to, to, to disciple. And then step number three is the gospel. Practically understood. The centerpiece of the Bible is the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. He is our focal point. If the Bible were a landscape, the gospel would be its highest peak. The Old Testament writers pointed to him, the gospel, and the New Testament writers told us about him, the gospel, and church history has been looking back to him, the gospel. We are supposed to follow and emulate. We're supposed to be in and we're supposed to exalt the gospel, Christ. The gospel is the profound message of God's word, and it must be the heartfelt message of our lives. The difficulty for us is how to connect the gospel or connect Christ to the mundane realities of our lives. And that's why I make this point three, that we must understand the gospel practically speaking. I want you to listen to how Paul joined, connected the gospel to our everyday lives in a verse that you are very familiar with. Ephesians four, he said, let all bitterness This is a practical event that can happen in our lives. And wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. There are several labels there that we have and can struggle with. And then the next sentence says, here's what to put on. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And here's the gospel connection. Here it is. Why? Why? As God in Christ forgave you, there's your motivation. And so I want you to test my thesis thus far. Point number one is knowledge, a base of knowledge. In this verse that I just shared with you, the base of knowledge is Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. There's the knowledge. There's the verse. There's the two sentences. Point number two, disciple. An individual or a couple that are looking for your help. Well, Paul is taking that knowledge and he's applying it practically to in this case, the Ephesian church, but you can apply it to anyone. Paul is not primarily interested in them becoming smarter by memorizing Ephesians 4: 31 and32. Now that would be a good thing to do. I'm not saying that. He, but he is applying that knowledge practically to real people with real lives with real problems. Paul does not want you to he doesn't want us to divorce what we do, forgiving, forgiving, from the motive for why we do it the gospel. It's important. He's taking the knowledge. He's taking Christ forgave you. That's the gospel. And he's telling these disciples, you need to learn how to forgive others. And so he's connecting the gospel to real life. Here's the knowledge. I'm talking to you, and I'm using the gospel to show you. Do you see how he connected the gospel to a practical need in our lives? If you do divorce your practice from your motivation— the gospel. You could become a rote Christian or even a Pharisee. That's why this third step is so critical. And so you have a base of knowledge and you are discipling someone, but the gospel has to be there. There are plenty of people in the world who do good things. They can be kind and they can be tenderhearted, just like Ephesians 4.32 says. But Paul wants you to do better than being a sound moralist. He wants you to live out a gospel-centered lifestyle. You don't want to move Christ to the perimeter of your life while inserting something else in the middle as your driving motivation. And so when someone asks you why you did something, your answer must always be the gospel. Learn how to make gospel connections when you're discipling by joining all your thoughts your words your deeds to christ the gospel for example using ephesians 4 right here when a bitter person a bitter person paul said put away all bitterness when a bitter person asks you why she should forgive her husband you'll be ready with a gospel-centered answer in your discipleship here's what you could say ma'am it's because of the gospel that's why christ forgave you and god calls you to forgive others even if all you can do is forgive him in your heart because he is not asking you to forgive him. And though he may never be free from his sin, what he did should not manage you. Because of the power of the gospel and because of the command of Christ to put away all bitterness and to forgive one another, you can let it go. The goal of discipleship is not about, this is point number four now, Port number four is you want to export all this. You have a base of knowledge. You're discipling someone, you're connecting to the gospel, and now you want to export. The goal of discipleship is not about personal wholeness, primarily, whatever that means. Honestly, I don't even know exactly what that means. I think I know what they're trying to say. The purpose of discipleship is about being Christ like. That's the purpose. That's that's better than wholeness. I know what that's like. That's the gospel. The number one reason a person comes to counseling is to get their lives straightened out. Rarely will someone come for more than that purpose. Now, if that's where you are and and that's what needs to happen, then fantastic. But you'll have to teach them that as Christians, we have to have higher goals than merely getting over our problems. One of the unintended consequences of the modern counseling movement, and also our culture, no question, is that it has helped to create a pack of of me-centered Christians. But the point of the Bible is to go and pour your life into others, which is the assumed work of the whole person. I mean, if you are a whole person, then it is assumed that you're going to take that and export it to another. But sometimes pastors bog themselves down in helping people overcome their problems because they have no choice. It can be so time-consuming that to do preventative discipleship training is not an option. They are more like life coaches. And there's a world of difference when a life coach and a discipler, the former, helps you allows you to help people with their questions, but the latter allows you to help them so that they can help others. Paul did not counsel, he discipled. If he helped someone, counsel if you wish, it was only to ramp up that person so he could spread the gospel to others. He was all about spreading, pushing, sharing the gospel around the world. He emulated the purposes of Christ. Christ did not come to give us wholeness only. He came to give us a message to share. We are disciple makers. The best way to make your discipleship effective is to give your disciples someone to disciple. If you want your disciple to be a humble learner, provide them with somebody with problems. I would give the folks in my small group, not all, but those who were ready, I would give them someone in the church they could come alongside of, so they could love on them, help them in their situational difficulty. And I disciple the small group members through this process. Now, when this happens, my small group members are more attentive. They're more humble. They're more curious about how to care for these people. They are learning by doing rather than taking the sitting and soaking worldview from Sunday into their small group meetings. By the way, I've set up our mastermind program with the same worldview. Our students start discipling from week one. In college, you sit and learn a lot of great stuff, but you really have no questions because you don't know what questions to ask. You don't have a vocation to where you can apply all the fantastic knowledge that you are acquiring. Move forward four years when you hit the production floor. Now you have a ton of questions, but you cannot recall all that you learned way back when. Nobody can do that. You teach a man how to fish by putting a rod and reel in his hand. Don't show him a video. Don't have him read a book. And I guarantee you that he will pay attention and he will be asking a lot of of questions. Jesus did not sit around teaching a Bible study. He walked with his friends, giving them things to do while instructing them all along the way. And even when they came back from their disciple-making opportunities, he would do a debrief with them This method is how you want to train others so they can do better than merely helping them through their problems. The title of the podcast, How to Disciple Someone So They Will Care for Others. There's a lot of information that I've not shared with you because the article's long. I hope you enjoyed it. Your Daily Drive is a production of RickThomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to RickThomas.net. RickThomas.net.